chapter 1 and verse 7. Just the one verse tonight, because I want to eat ice cream. Proverbs 1, 7. I'm sure that you're familiar with the text, heard it at least, read it in your life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then the ESV says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Um, However, in the Hebrew text, it's the opposite. Wisdom and instruction, fools despise. It puts it in another order, puts wisdom and instruction first, and then gives the emphasis to you about what you're going to choose to do with wisdom and instruction. If you make a wrong choice, then you're a fool. Make a right choice, then you will be knowledgeable or wise. All right, that's our text, simply titled, The Fear of the Lord. I'm not going to read them all. I'm not even going to give you the references, just to make note that the phrase, the fear of the Lord, is used 15 times uh, in the book of Proverbs. We will run across it again as we work through this. But just to kind of set the stage a little bit, I'm just giving a short paraphrase. I'm not going to read the text. You can read it for yourself at another time. But a good way to view, because we have to work this fear of the Lord out where it makes sense to us and we understand what's being said here. Um, I think about Isaiah 6 and that story. And so as I paraphrase that briefly, what we have in Isaiah 6 is the prophet Isaiah with a right vision of God. So that's key. I have to see God rightly. Now, we understand that Isaiah sees God rightly, for his response is, as you know, holy, holy, holy. This is a right view of God. He is holy. With a right view of God, then you're able to see a right view of yourself. I'm unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. I've got a sin problem in my heart. There, there needs to be an atonement Something has to happen because God's holy. I'm in danger. I'm in danger. He really is holy, and I'm not, so I'm in danger. If something's not changed, then the full brunt of who He is is going to be put upon me. Then you know you have the the hot coals and placed upon his lips and the purging, and he's been made clean. Atonement has been made in that Isaiah 6. Then you find this. You have this discussion, and who will go for us? So there's this mission mandate that comes after this event. And because he has a right view of God, because he has a right view of self, because he understands the necessity of the atonement applied to him, now God speaks Who shall I send? I'm right here. You speak, and I say yes. That's the way it works. That's the fear of the Lord. God says, so I say yes. Not lip service, but just tell me where to go, because I'm on my way. We sing this. It was in the song. We sing this type of stuff. But Isaiah meant it. We sing it, and we don't even know what we sang. We, we sing these songs, and they, it doesn't change us. Perhaps because we don't have a right view of God. Because if we saw God rightly, 
we'd see ourselves rightly, we'd understand what Christ did to make atonement, and then when God said something, we'd say, yes, and obey what was said. That is the fear of the Lord. Biblical fear conforms the will of man into submission to the will of God. And it does so in a way that causes man to desire or to delight to do God's will. It's not like I'm forced to do his will and I hate doing it, but a right view of God, a right view of self, brings me to this position of delighting to be conformed unto his will. Well, just in introductory fashion, and I'm not naming names or bashing churches, but let me at least say these things. I would say that somewhat in regards to our own church even here. So it's not like I'm talking about everybody out there. I'm talking about us at times when I say, sadly, the fear of the Lord has been lost on most Christians. It's been lost in most churches. What's the result You take the fear of the Lord, biblical fear of the Lord, take it out of the church, remove it, and you fill the church with entertainment, rock star preachers, Hollywood bands, lights, smoke, and a crowd that resembles a concert more than the worship of God. It's not hard to find this stuff. You can look about anywhere on the internet. It's everywhere. If God's presence, this is my opinion, that if God's presence was to manifest itself in the most in in the common church of America, most people would wet their pants or run out of the room in absolute fear. Because they've never experienced the presence of God. The American religion view of God has sunk to an all-time low. And as I said, I'm not here to bash other churches or pretend that we have it all figured out because we don't. Our number one, our number one problem here at By the Word Baptist Church is not truth. That's not our problem. It's not like we lack truth or we lack Bible or we lack exposition or we've got faulty theology or weak doctrine That's not our problem, truth. It's really not. Our problem is conformity to truth. That's a whole different issue. It's one thing to state all the great doctrines. It's one thing to spell out theology. It's one thing to have conversations about great and deep theological subjects. It's a whole other thing to be conformed unto what those doctrines teach. And the only thing that can conform us to the truth is a right view of God. Our problem, sadly, is we simply do not fear God. Because if we did, everything changes. Now, in our text, the fear of the Lord must be the reality of, or the church. If the fear of the Lord is not a reality for you and I, the church I'm not trying to be too harsh. I'm trying to use the text. But if we don't have a proper fear of the Lord, the church will continue to produce fools. That's all she'll produce if you don't have fear of the Lord. 
All right, point number one, fear of the Lord. Shocking. Descriptions. I'm not going to work these out. I'm going to try to get to where we're going, but the descriptions of the fear of the Lord, I'm just, we have to do something with fear because this is where we go amok in so many discussions about fear. But let me just give you a little taste. Fear, as we know fear and understand the word fear, escalates when we're in the face of danger. You say, what do you mean? Well, if you're in an airplane and the motor stops running, you understand fear. There's some level of fear comes into the room at that point. So when those things happen, we say we have fear. Or fear derives from the sense of self-protection. If you want to go back just a few years, here's what fear does. You might get COVID, you might die. I'll run and hide in my room. Because I'm afraid. I gotta preserve myself because I gotta keep myself from dying. Good luck with that. Buena suerte. You're gonna die. But fear calls people to do all kinds of weird stuff because I gotta preserve my life. And fear also comes from the result of inabilities. I can't control it, I can't fix it. These things are on the line and I can't do something about it. I'm afraid. I might lose my 401k. I might lose my job. I might lose my kid. They may rebel. These things I can't control, and so I get afraid. Fear. Now, let me give you some differences. We're all, we can deal with those, but here's some differences. I was a little kid. I think I was in the fourth grade. Maybe I was in the fifth grade. We had a mobile home. We just watched trailer trash growing up, right? So, so I had this mobile home, and I wanted a dog, and I wanted a dog real bad. I'm a little kid. Kids want a dog. I want a dog. And one day, a dog comes in the yard. And I'm like, ah, that's going to be my dog. I'm getting this dog. But a dog goes up under the mobile home. It's cool in there. And he digs him a little hole. And he's up under that mobile home just trying to stay cool in the summer. And I'm the little kid, fourth grade kid, trying to get the dog out from under the trailer where to play with me, right? So here's some food. Here's some water. Come here, come here, come here, come here. And then he wouldn't come, so I'm like, I'm desperate. And I get down, and I crawl under the trailer, so I'll crawl to the dog, right? But the closer I get, he runs away, and he runs away. I never got the dog to come to me, ever. Why? Because the dog was afraid. Afraid of what? He had been beaten by somebody else. And because he was beaten, here's a dog in fear. That's not the fear of the Lord we're talking about. That's not it. That's one kind of fear. Then there's other types of fear. There's fears of panic. You want to see panic? Try to ride out a hurricane. See a tornado on the horizon coming towards your house. These type of things, earthquake, everything's shaking. Panic, fear, everybody losing their minds. 911, panic just permeates the city. These types of fears. Our fear, we have fears of sickness, the dreaded word cancer, the dreaded phrase inoperable uh, operation is on the horizon, death looms in the room. All of these related to self-protection, these fears arrive. But the fear of the Lord is a little different than those things. So let me couch it in an earthly example and then move to a heavenly example. So growing up, I'm not a perfect kid, my dad's not a perfect dad. I get that. But I feared my father growing up. Now, to make a distinction, my dad worked out of town. He left Sunday afternoon after church. He works all week long, and he comes home at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning on Thursday. He's at home on Friday and Saturday, Sunday morning, and he goes back to work. That's the way we live. My dad's a construction worker. That's life. 
So my dad comes in. You wake up on Friday morning. Dad's in the house. He hadn't been there all week, but now he's in the house. And dad comes out of the room, or dad's there, and dad says, I told you. Now, I'm not running and crawling under my bed and hiding because I think my daddy's going to beat me. Not that type of fear, but the type of fear that goes, oh, no, I didn't do what dad said. I'll do it right now, dad. It's a real fear, and I'm really afraid that dad would get the belt, and he will really apply the belt. This is back in the days when real parents were real parents, and they actually whipped their kids when they were wrong. And I knew daddy would whoop me, and so I had a real fear, but not the fear of a beaten dog, the fear of a dad who was strong and loved me enough to discipline me. That's different than a dog hiding under the trailer because it's been beat half its life. So we're talking about fear of the Lord, that God's got a stick running around going, wham, 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 and you're always running and hiding because God's just going to beat the smack out of you. No, a God who loves you so much that he will discipline you if you don't adhere to what he says. Now, in translation notes of Hebrew-type phrases, but in this expression, the fear of the Lord, there's three ranges of meaning. Let me just cut to the middle of it. But this Hebrew word, to be in dread or terror, it's certainly used that way in Deuteronomy 129, to stand in awe before the Lord, speechless, if you will. Or you could say to revere or to respect. Now, but this fear with the Lord as the object, we're fearing who? A person, a real person who is God. He's the object of our fear. He captures the tension, he captures our attention in such a way he demands our attention to him. You see this in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20, and you see the Lord descend on Mount Sinai, And he comes down in this great and powerful presence. And here's what happens when God descends and comes down in the midst of the people. Moses encourages the church. He encourages the Israelites. And he says what? Don't be afraid. Why does he say that? Because they are. Don't be afraid of God just striking you dead for no reason. But he informs the people this. The Lord is revealing himself in this way, in this terrifying manner, to scare you away from sin. That's why God's manifested himself. He's come to test you to put the fear of him in you so that you do not sin. So at least catch a hint here. A right view of the fear of the Lord is a preventative for sinful living. If I sin, God will discipline me. I don't want to be disciplined. I'm not entering into this sin because I fear God. The fear of the Lord is expressed in reverential reverential submission to His will. This is the characteristic of true worship. I bow down, God is exalted. He gets the glory, and I'm in submission to His Lordship, His sovereignty, His ruling, His kingship. All of those words, 
He's in charge, and I'm in submission to him, and I want to do my worship in a way that the God of heaven says, I am pleased with your worship. Now, the fear of the Lord, out of the book of Proverbs, you can write these down if you'd like and look at them later. I'll just give you the references. But the fear of the Lord, it is the very foundation of wisdom. Chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is a discipline that leads to wisdom. Wisdom, chapter 15, verse 33. This fear of the Lord is expressed in hating evil. Chapter 8, verse 13. And the fear of the Lord is an avoidance of sin. Chapter 16, verse 6. And it also, a right fear of the Lord, prolongs life. Chapter 10, verse 27. Chapter 19, verse 23. That's point number one, but let's do questions. These are rhetorical. You don't have to answer them out loud. But if you have a fear of the Lord, you'll answer these between you and the Lord. So test tonight your level of fear. So we all want to readily say, yeah, we fear the Lord. Okay, well, let's do a short test. What is your response to the Lord when he speaks to you from his word. Now, each one of you have to work that out in your own. So if we deal with today, God's word said, you receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses. What was your response? Do you even remember the sermon? Did you witness to anybody? Do you have any plans? Have you prayed for a soul because of what God has said? You say, well, no. This is because you don't fear the Lord. The Lord spoke and you ignored Him because you don't fear Him. Secondly, what things, this is very difficult for our American religion, what things can you participate in without your conscience being bothered? What can you watch? What conversation can you have? Where can you go? And it doesn't even bother you, but yet the reality of what God's Word said ought to convict you that you're participating in it. So what, what type of things can you do, and it doesn't even bother you, whereas a man of God would say, there's no way on God's green earth I'd ever participate in that. How, how easy, third question, how easy is it for you to justify things that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt are sinful. How good are you at justifying your sin? When you can justify what you know is sin, the reason is you don't fear God. You don't fear Him. Number four and last application. Does it concern you to know that one day you're going to have to give an account to God? of your life. Number two, the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord, beginning of knowledge. A right view of God. God has the liberty, the free will, to define himself. God defines himself. We don't get that privilege. We have to receive how he defines himself. We understand this. God is not like me. God is not like you. God is other than us. He is holy. He is set apart. These are just big words, but they all have meaning. God is immeasurable. God is impeccable, without sin. God is 
insurmountable. There's no one who can overcome him. God is inviolable, which means unbreakable, firm, sacred. God is all these things and so much more. God's far bigger than what you first imagine. And it's just a, it's just a, a clip there of a right view of God. We can go on and on and on and on. I'm trying to tell you, elevate your view of God that your fear of God would be enlarged because without that, you cannot grow in knowledge. A right response to God, who is immeasurable, impeccable, insurmountable, inviolable, a right response to this God, really is simple. Humility. God is right. I am wrong. Let God be true, and every man a liar. Whatever he says is right no matter how I feel. Whatever he says is the right way no matter what the world says. This is a response. You're Lord and I'm slave. You're master, I am servant. You are the one in charge, not me. This is fear of the Lord. God speaks and your servant is listening. Obedience comes out of humility. It's the right response. And out of humility... And out of obedience, what comes out of the life of the Christian? Worship. Worship. A magnifying of this great God because of our fear of Him. We want Him to get all the glory. John the Baptist understood this. He must increase. That's the issue of worship. It's not, I must decrease. Push me to the back. Back when I used to preach revivals, they'd say, hide the preacher behind the cross. Yes, hide me way behind it that Christ may come to the forefront. Psalm chapter 2 is a wonderful thing. Sometimes we miss the phrases, but I skip to the end, and it deals with wisdom, right? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Wisdom, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. What does he say? Serve, worship. Serve, worship. Same word comes out of the Hebrew word there. Serve the Lord with goosebumps, giddiness, and laughter. No, no, no. Serve the Lord with fear. A proper view of God and a proper view of self. Rejoice for sure. But do it with trembling, because we're in the presence of God. Now, this is the part we skip over in our theology, at least in world American religion. Kiss the Son, that's humility, submission to Him. Kiss the Son. Why? Because if you don't submit to Him, He may become angry. You say, how so? Because His wrath is quickly kindled. And then you hear this phrase, you're telling me Jesus has really quick wrath, it's really easily kindled, what do I do? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You, you told me to tremble and you told me to be in fear. Right fear and right trembling drives you to Christ and you cling to him in absolute worship. This is the fear of the Lord. It has to do with a right relationship with God. Walking beside him. What a graphic picture. I don't do horses. I'm not a horse person. I asked my wife the other day if we could buy a horse. I thought she was going to slap me, but that's another whole story. But here's the thing. 
Christians with a right view of God, if you, you watch, uh, I don't even know the names. I'm a motocross bicycle racer. I don't know. The Kentucky Derby, the Triple Crown, those horse things. And you watch them, and you see the horse, and it walks beside its master, and its head is up, the tail is done, all things are groomed, and that horse is proud to walk beside its master. Walking beside God like that. Don't be drugged, kicking and screaming like a mule. That's not it. Fear of the Lord, head up, walking beside the one I fear. Worshiping him continually with fear and honor. Willingly and delightfully, get this, willingly and delightfully being conformed to his word. That's what happens to the person who fears God. Application. Again, test your level of fear. Just three questions this time instead of four. How are you going to respond to the counsel of the book of Proverbs? Hey, Proverbs, it's wise counsel. I know that. But what are you going to do when the counsel's given? When it's applied to you, what are you going to do? That will tell you what type of fear of the Lord you have. How much effort... Will you put forth in your personal life to seek direction from this book? I'm going through an issue. I don't know what to do. I don't know. Maybe you should read the book of Proverbs and see if God says something. But when you find it, what are you going to do with it? Third question. Will you see God's counsel as superior to the world's counsel? I know that's what God says, but Oprah said... I know this is God's Word, but Dr. Phil said, and no, this is exactly what God's Word is saying, but you see, we live in a different culture in a different time, and you see, all these people are saying, you don't fear God. You fear God, I don't care what anybody else says. God says this, this is wise, I fear Him, I submit, no matter what anybody else says. Point number three. The fool's disposition. And we see that in the second line. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Despise. This Hebrew word means to treat things of value with contempt. To treat things with value as if they're worthless. You want a classic example? I'll give you one out of Genesis. Esau who despised his birthright and sold it for lentil stew. It was valuable, and he didn't care. Think, this book is valuable when it's preached, when it's taught, when it's read. It's valuable. What you do with it shows whether you despise it or honor it. Esau despised his birthright. The perfect verb here in the Hebrew places the life that fools have, what the lives they've lived, in contrast to the beginning of moral knowledge. In other words, here is the way of wisdom. Here's the way. Go this way. This is the way of wisdom. The fool says, I'm going this way. You want it in in a prophetic term? Go to Nineveh. This is the wisest way to walk. I'm going to Tarshish. You're a fool, Jonah. 
That's the contrast here. We have the Word of God rightly in its sense and meaning, exegeted, preached, and applied, and we say, I know that's true, but... I know, Pastor, what you're saying is right, but that's where the issue comes. The fools, they have despised the Lord. So by implication, when you come to the second half of the verse, you have to ask yourself, what's my choice? It's clear. It's not hard to understand. It's clear. Here it is in the text. Here's the counsel. What am I going to do? How am I going to respond? That's your choice. I know people like to talk about free will. Fine, let's talk about free will. What are you going to choose when God's wisdom is applied or read? What's your choice? Submission or rebellion? The fools, our text says, despise the Lord. Placing wisdom and instruction before fools despise puts the focus Not on the nature of fools, but puts the focus on what decision you're going to make in regards to the counsel of the Lord. Discard. Throw something away. Get rid of it. Here comes something valuable. I'm going to throw it. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to carry it with me. That's what fools do with wisdom. Now, we've seen last week that wisdom has to do with skill putting knowledge into right practice. Now, the fool takes the knowledge and doesn't apply it rightly because he's a fool. Now, here's what happens with us, and this happens to some of us in this room, so we need to be paying attention to what the Lord says here. And I'm going to make it really powerful because I'm going to read from the King James Bible. So, when there's things that your conscience tells you is true, you know in your heart This is true. This is wise. Thus saith the Lord. I know that. My conscience approves. The Word of God says it. And you say, but I am not going to put that into practice. I know God's saying, but I'm not doing. 1 Timothy 4.2, King James. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Here's what happens. You do it long enough, and then you can do mega sins for extended periods of time with no conviction. You can curse every day, drink every day, look at pornography every day, and it doesn't even bother you. And it just goes from worse to worse to worse to worse. And you're like, I thought this person was a Christian. How can they live like this? The conscience has been seared because God's counsel was given, God's word was preached, and they said, I know it's true, but I'm not listening and I'm not doing it. Why? Because I don't fear God. They discard wisdom. They discard discipline. Discipline or instruction. Fools have no moral discipline. Fools lack practical discipline, the fool, as Psalm will tell us, says in his heart, no God, no God. While all the while, they know there is a God. I know there is one, but no God. Actions speak the language of fools when God's counsel is rejected. And we in this church, surely nobody here tonight is going to say, look, there's no God. 
Surely, surely there's not one in the room that's going to stand up and say, there's not a God and this is all meaningless. But by our action, we're saying there is no God because I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I don't care what nobody says. And the nobody included God. I don't care what he says because I'm an American and I'm white and I'm middle class and I can do whatever I want to do because everybody pulls their pants on one leg at a time and ain't nobody telling me what to do. Not even God. We agree with the gospel. I do not want this man to rule over me. We discard it. And then the result of despising the word, discarding the word, is we become devoid we have no right view of God, no res- right response to the living things of, to the things of God, and no right relationship with the God who will be our judge in the end. Then we come to the last one, uh, point number four. It's not necessarily in the text; it's implied from the things we've said thus far. And I've titled the fourth point: the Christian's great dilemma. It's short, but somewhat thought-provoking, I hope. Professions devoid of theology. It's a Christian's great dilemma. The lack of conformity to God is a testimony of a person who has a definition of God that is far too small. We have a theology. There's a God. Preach the Bible, preacher. Everywhere I go, good church, bad church, indifferent church, wherever I go, we just want somebody to preach the Bible. Do you now? Do you really want the word preached? Because if you're not going to do anything with it, you really never even wanted it. They, they have this theology, but they have no conformity. And so the reason is, is because they don't rightly understand who God is. I hope that's not you. And when you're professing a, div- a life that is devoid of theological things applied rightly, then you're plagued by a life of hypocrisy. Herein is, lies the majority of confessing Christianity in our day and age. The words that are spoken acknowledge the holiness of God, the truth of God's Word, and even the amount of love possessed towards God, but the life that is lived is contrary to the words spoken. You want an example? I'll give you a graphic example of people I don't know, but it's public. You can look at it anywhere and read it for yourself. This is how pathetic people's view of God is. Republican Nancy Mace this past week, member of South Carolina church called the Seacoast Church. She was invited to that church by Senator Tim Scott. Tim Scott's been a member there for 27 years. So he invites her to church. She starts attending. She accepts Christ four years ago, and she becomes a Christian in this church, right? This is her story. So they have a prayer breakfast, you know, political event, politicians speaking. Her pastor's there. It's at her church. She's 45 years old, and she comes to this prayer breakfast, the Uh, 13th annual South Carolina prayer breakfast. And she's a speaker at the breakfast. She decides to discard her written speech and she decides to speak from her heart. And she's a, a little bit late getting to the meeting. This is what she says, quote, 
when I woke up this morning at 7, I was getting picked up at 7.45. Patrick, my fiancé, tried to pull me by the waist over this morning, and God knows, I was like, no, baby, we got no time for that this morning. I got to get to the prayer breakfast, and I got to be on time, and I need a little TMI, but I know it can wait. I'll see you later tonight. I'm sleeping with this guy outside of marriage. It's making me late for my prayer breakfast. Mace has since clarified in a number of statements on the all-famous Twitter that she's not a saint, and she does not, and that she does, listen, I'm just, this, this speaks to so many. She takes her faith in God seriously. I believe God while I continually sleep with a man outside of marriage. She says, the comment was just a joke. That's what she says. Quote, I go to church because I'm a sinner, not a saint. Glad those in attendance, including the Senator Tim Scott and my pastor, took this joke in stride. Pastor Greg and I will have extra to talk about on Sunday. Getting saved four years ago, she says, gave me my second chance that I needed. Finding my faith was also life-changing for my family. We haven't ever looked back. I'm indebted to Senator Tim Scott for guiding me to this church. I'm indebted to our church for helping me get back on track. I'm in church, back on track, living with somebody outside of marriage. I'm I'm thankful to this church to help me find purpose in life and do good, to leave the world better than I found it. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's what she says. I can sleep with people outside of marriage because Christ gives me the power. She has two children with her ex-husband, Chris Curtis, whom she divorced in 2019 after 15 years of marriage, which was before her marriage to Jackson. She was married to a lawyer in the U.S. Air Force, and now she's living with a guy that hopefully someday she'll get married because then they can be happy. I say that story why? Because she's a Christian, confessing Christian. She believes God. I don't know. You want to read the first chapters of Proverbs and find out what to do with an adulterous woman? You want to find out how to respond to a woman like this? I'm pretty sure Proverbs is going to tell us how we're supposed to live. And I take my faith seriously. Do you now? If you take it seriously, then you abandon this and you die to this in order to be holy because God is to be feared. Well, in my attempt to be creative... This is it. There are many people who are pretending their way to hell. I'll say these slowly, but there's a lot under them, and I'm not going to unpack them tonight. But I'll say them slowly, and hopefully the Spirit of God will give you illumination. Pretending your way to hell. Confession without conformity is the path to condemnation. Religion without regeneration, is like a pig wearing a tuxedo. Preparation without predestination is like packing a suitcase without a plane ticket. Jesus 
without justification is like driving a car but not having the title. It's not yours. Sundays without sanctification is like a gym membership without exercise. Godliness without glorification is like a team without a championship. They're in the game, they just never make it to the big time. I'll sum up the teaching up. I would like to sum up the teaching in just a verse or two by the Lord Jesus. So we bring it back together in conclusion. In that frightful night in the garden, when he was preparing to bear the awful load of sin and face the unmitigated wrath of God, he was confronted with the fear of his father. And the difficulty of his flesh and what he had to bear. And it is here that we see what a right fear of God produces. Text says, And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, it's not about my will. Your will be done. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, If this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. His love for the Father conformed his flesh to an obedience that brought glory to God. Now, you and I, God's Word says, my flesh don't like it. I don't like what it says. It goes contrary to my flesh. But I fear God. Your will be done. Crush my fleshly will. Conform me to your will because that's for my good. I fear you and I'm going to submit that you would conform me to look like your son. Last thing, for example. Here's a, just apply it in straightforward fashion. In the very next verse... Chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. I fear the Lord. I'm not going to rebel against my parents. God's Word says, and that's what's right. Or we could skip ahead one of my favorites. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. I fear God, I won't touch alcohol. I have nothing to do with it. But as God said, it's a brawler. And lead me astray. Well, yeah, I know, but I mean, a social drink, what's the big deal? God said, it'll lead me astray. I, yeah, I know, but in our culture, I mean, I mean, Jesus drank wine, right? I mean, doesn't say that somewhere, like in John or something? Didn't he drink wine? I mean, didn't they say he was a drunkard or something? I mean, it's all right. I mean, I mean, one drink in moderation, right? It will lead me astray. God's Word says it. I'm not touching it because I fear God, and I think he's right, and I think I'm wrong. True or genuine fear of the Lord will cause you to receive the Word as true and prevent you from being rebellious to your parents or being led astray from alcohol. To take two examples out of Proverbs. So, if I, 
if you really fear the Lord. When he speaks, we submit and say yes, and our life is conformed to his will rather than our will. What's the slogan today? God just wants me to be happy. Really now, I don't think you have a text for that. I'm pretty sure God wants you to be holy. I have a text for that. Be you holy, for the Lord your God is holy. We need to take our direction and the conforming of our lives from Scripture seriously fearing God and submitting to Him when He speaks. I don't know what you think. I don't know what goes through your mind. Half the time, I don't know what goes through my own mind. But I know this, and don't preach from this pulpit in order to entertain you or take up time. I don't preach from this pulpit to impress you where you'll pat me on the back and say, good sermon, because that's not going to do us any good. I preach from this pulpit, from this book, because I want your life to be conformed to the will of God. And I want you to hear what God says in order that you would know how to live for his glory and for your good. Father, thank you for By the Word Baptist Church. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. God, forgive me um, besides the church. Lord, forgive me for the many times your word has clearly spoken to me and I have ignored it. And the many times in which I've walked towards Tarshish instead of towards Nineveh. Lord, I'm not innocent in this matter. Many times I've thrown away the fear of the Lord and I've done what I wanted to do and I've paid the price. I pray, God, tonight that we as a church body would take more seriously what you say and that we would submit to it we would honor it. And Lord, that you would be pleased that we would do so because we love you. Most importantly, because you first loved us. So Lord, let these words be written on our heart, stamped on our minds, and Lord, that they will have effect tomorrow, tonight. When something happens with the spouse, we'll remember what your word says about how to treat the spouse. When something happens with the children, and we'll know not to provoke them unto anger. And Lord, there's so much here. Lord, help us to listen to your word and apply it in daily, everyday situations. We pray these things by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.